0: It's been a stressful few days. I think we've all watched more cable TV than we'd like to. I've definitely watched more than I have since I was a kid when I watched Nickelodeon all day. I don't think I've refreshed Twitter quite as much as I did this week. But speaking to you on Friday morning, it seems we nearly have a result in the U.S. presidential election. Joe Biden will take the White House and probably the Republicans are going to have the Senate. This election had huge implications for people around the world. Today, we're going to bring you three interviews with people who can talk about the implications for the tech industry. It's a fitting topic, as this is The Informations 411. I'm Corey Weinberg, a reporter at The Information. And we have some key questions in the immediate aftermath. What the hell is going on with the polling industry? What can we expect from a potential Biden administration? That's probably the biggest one. And can companies like Lyft and Uber take their Proposition 22 victory in California national? And to answer some of these questions, first, I called up Jim Messina on Thursday morning. Jim made a popular move by transitioning from a top role in the Obama White House to a position as a permanent West Coaster, who tries to help tech people understand what's happening in Washington. Then I called up Bruce Melman, a longtime Republican lobbyist who works with tech firms. Both Bruce and Jim seem to think that tech policy could be an area of bipartisan agreement amid divided government, so that'll be a really important development to watch. And finally, I talked to Betsy Huber, a former Obama campaign organizer who specializes in how tech can improve political organizing and the electoral system. It seems like there's a lot of opportunity there after this election. First, we'll go to my interview with Jim Messina. What are people buzzing about in your in sort of tech-centric circles these days? What, what, what are sort of VCs or... or tech execs thinking, feeling, asking about uh, at this hour?
1: Yeah, Corey, it's a great question. So I now live in San Francisco, so I swim in in your waters now. Um, And people really want to know three things. One, how quickly he's going to move on immigration policies um, because there's a need on H-1B visas to unlock the cap, which he and Harris have promised for a while and is important to a bunch of people. Two, everyone wants to know what Biden's going to do on China. And then three, the the question is, you know, Section 230. Um, and it's the thing that gives tech uh, immunity from uh, the things they post. Uh, and there's been bipartisan calls um, to reform that.
0: Yeah, I mean, the markets are reacting positively to the news, which kind of surprised me a little bit. I, I mean, I've sort of stopped trying to predict the markets this year. It's been, it's been a strange one, but the consensus I hear is like divided government's good for business. It's good for tech stocks. It, it, it lowers the likelihood of corporate tax hikes. Are investors and sort of the business crowd overlooking anything in terms of what a Biden administration could do to impact tech in particular? um, Is this celebration, so to speak, like a little premature?
1: I think the people in Silicon Valley underestimate one thing, which is the kind of changing in the political tone and tenor of how um, Washington feels about tech and you know in the obama world we were just completely wedded to tech he wouldn't have won the primary without all the google facebook and twitter and everyone else kids who left their jobs temporarily and moved to iowa we got into the administration and you saw people like eric schmidt and other folks in the white house more than you saw me and it was kind of a symbiotic relationship you know 10 years later you have you know ted cruz the arch conservative retweeting elizabeth warren's attacks um, on uh, on big tech. And you have both Trump and Biden wanting to get rid of Section 230. And you have b- both parties talking about the influence of tech.
0: You mentioned at the top about some of the bigger questions around immigration and China, you know, those being kind of two issues that do you see some of those policies being the Quickest to unwind a little bit for the Biden administration, or, or what do you expect to see there?
1: So, I think the two interesting things here. First of all, the very quickest thing to do, and you'll see Biden do it immediately, is just tear up the Trump immigration policies. So, he'll uncap H 1Bs, and that'll be good, and tech will love it. Um, I think China is a more interesting issue. You know, um, when I was a baby senate staffer, I worked on China Favored Nation in 1996. They made us a bunch of promises um that, that may or may not have been. I think there's an assessment in Washington that Biden's just gonna go back to the old way on China, and I don't think that's true. Um mm-hmm. I think you know if you look at the ads in the Midwest in the presidential race, there are more anti-ads from both parties, anti-China ads than anything else. And you know, you have Biden and Senator Schumer have long been China kind of critics. Um so I think you'll see some more rhetorical flares. The good news is one of the things I've been most critical of uh, President Trump, and this gets super geeky, but um, everyone in the Valley will know this, is SIPIUS. Like the the new rules on Scipius have made it almost impossible for Chinese companies to come to the U.S. and for U.S. companies to take investment from China in partnerships. And that has really hurt our position in the AI field and a bunch of other things. Um, and, you know, I have a bunch of clients who care very deeply about CFIUS and we're able to make some progress under Trump. But what is true is Biden will go back to a very more rational CFIUS policy that will really help investments uh, in the tech world and help US competitiveness. Um, One one bipartisan thing, Biden will continue Trump's uh, R&D funding of AI, which has been really good. And then he'll go in and kind of really push some of the things that the Valley has talked about um, in, in flexibility and more funding for, for research in healthcare, energy, and some of the other things that we can partner with the Valley on to really expand American
0: competitiveness. Next, I called up Bruce Melman, a longtime Republican lobbyist who works with a litany of tech firms. He used to work in the Bush administration, and I caught up with him over Zoom, which is a client of his. He also lobbies for Lyft, which had a big win Tuesday with the passage of Prop 22, a referendum that undid a California law that would have made their drivers full-time employees. First, Bruce and I talked about what he thought to expect from the next presidential administration. So let's start with kind of the big topic, which is competition policy and antitrust. You know, the big lawsuit from The Justice Department that dropped, you know, a few weeks before the election on Google, you know, one of the biggest moves in sort of uh, history to kind of at least look towards curbing, uh, you know, sort of companies' monopolistic powers. Um, What happens under a Biden presidency there, do you think? Should Facebook and Amazon, et cetera, be watching out for, for more action here?
2: Uh, it's been clear from the start from the Biden campaign that uh, his progressive base and even a lot of the more moderate folks in his in his party feel like it was probably a mistake in 2013 for the FTC to let Google off the hook. Uh, it was probably uh, a mistake to allow Facebook to acquire Instagram, though knowing what they knew then is different than knowing what we know now uh, and WhatsApp Uh it's, it is a, a rare area of bipartisan agreement, along with, uh, along with concern about China and where China is going on tech in their 2025 plan. Uh, the other area of, of arguably greatest bipartisan agreement is that uh, the data dominant players of big tech uh, are not as constrained by the Chicago School of Antitrust as maybe they need to be, that it warrants a lot of uh, intense oversight and perhaps action to try to uh, to try to make sure competition it uh, can flourish.
0: Does the fact that there might be divided government here actually increase the chance that, like you know, to get something done, maybe maybe they'll focus on uh, competition policy?
2: You know, so I do think uh, that a Democratic president who doesn't have when he starts a Democratic Senate, we haven't seen that since eighteen eighty four. Every Democrat since then, at least in his first two years has had a Democratic Senate to confirm his nominees and to otherwise uh, you know, help support where they're going. For that matter, they've all had a Democratic House as well, as Joe Biden does. I think that's going to constrain the agenda. It's going to be more small ball. But when you think about what it could be in small ball, first, you lose the aspirational and you move to the practical. With respect to tech, um, trying to make sure there is uh, th- that there is room for more competition is not a team red and a team blue thing per se. Um, it could... Either party could could screw it up and turn it into a more partisan thing. You see some of that in 230. But on competition policy, I think it's one of those areas where you could see um, uh, cooperation. You could see an antitrust lead at the Department of Justice work very closely with the Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman uh, Lindsey Graham, as well as uh, Cicilline in the House, and and say, you know, here's what I'm trying to do. Let me work with you guys. And, and uh, that could be more bipartisan than we've seen in a while.
0: Now that Prop 22 won by sort of such impressive margins, there's been some reporting and I think the companies themselves have sort of floated the idea of a national strategy to kind of enshrine gig work into federal policy, particularly as other states maybe consider California-like AB5 measures. What would that look like? What's the likelihood of, of that Happening, do you think
2: I think, thanks to the big win of prop twenty two there is a greater chance uh, of a bipartisan uh, cooperation out of Washington since you not, no party can run it solo, and this doesn 't really rise to the level of culture war fights that people don 't want to solve because they 're going to raise money off it and you know talk on Hannity and Maddow about it, so this is one they actually might try to solve and be able to solve um in the way that a lot of the uh, a lot of the great gig companies have proposed which is they want to see drivers you know who pick their own time who drive their own car who decide if they feel like driving that day who you know who are independent in so many ways you know but at the same time um struggle because of the way the system historically has been in the economy which is your your healthcare is so often tied to being an employee or same with your ability to save Um, And there ought to be individual tools that you own that you can take with you from gig job A to gig job B, or, you know, you could put together a portfolio of six different gig jobs and do the ones you feel like when you feel like, marrying it up with other work or with, you know, being a a retiree or a student. Uh, And uh, had Prop 22 failed, it looked more like a a union-led effort would would just kind of kill all a gig. Now it's far more likely that they're going to try to come up with ways um, as, the, as a lot of the gig players proposed to help the workforce of the gig economy um, find ways to save, find ways to, you know, be included when there are safety net questions, yet uh, retain the independence and flexibility of gig that appeals to the majority of them.
0: I want to go to my conversation now with Betsy Hoover, a Chicago-based tech and political campaigning veteran Betsy worked for Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012 before starting an early stage venture capital firm for political tech startups called Higher Ground Labs. It funds startups focused on improving political and campaign infrastructure, mostly for Democrats. It's too early for a complete sort of blow by blow or deep reflection on sort of lessons learned from this election, but it is going to be an election where there's gonna be scrutiny inside of political parties on what went right, what went wrong, as well as scrutiny on the election system, what went right, what went wrong. What are some early questions you're hearing, early impressions you're getting from your peers or from your portfolio companies about things you wanna kinda dig in on uh, once the dust settles a little bit,
3: I think the biggest question that has has come up as we as we get results is is how wrong the polls were, and you know we saw in twenty sixteen a really broken polling system. We thought that pollsters had been able to correct for that by adding some new inputs into into polls and and again you know we were we were still pretty wrong we you know Biden won Wisconsin we're really happy about that most polls had that at 10 or had him at a 10 or 11 point lead heading into election day he did not win Wisconsin by 10 or 11 points uh so what went wrong there what did we do wrong there and and what what can be learned so that we can get more um exact results uh in in future cycles so i think that's going to be a big piece
0: do you have a good explanation of, of why is it just one type of polling that is failing right now? It is all kinds of polling. Like, what's your, what's like the the sharpest answer you have on sort of the the polling question and, and whether there's, a, you know, any consensus around a better way to do it next time?
3: I, I do think about it as there's kind of two, two angles to think about polling. One is how people are being polled. So is that happening on landlines? Is that happening... On cell phone lines, is that happening through text? Is that happening, um, you know, through online surveys on Facebook or other platforms? How are we reaching people and, and surveying them with, with these questions for polls? So that's the first one. And then the second thing is, like, once you get the information back from a poll, how do you interpret that information? So how do you um, think about types of voters? How do you group voters? How do you model off of the um, results that you're getting? And that's kind of the area that, you know, after 2016, the narrative around polling was, well, we didn't factor in education level enough. Um, we didn't anticipate the split that would come from non-college educated and versus college educated voters and, and how that might um, impact who they voted for. Uh, there may be another thing like that coming out of 2020. I don't think we know what those things are yet. Um, but it's those two kind of vectors that I would watch for as we think about how we might use or change our use of polling in the future.
0: And the mistakes were landlines, online, every kind of tech, basically, is your understanding.
3: Yeah, I mean, we saw a couple of our um companies that are polling in different ways get a little bit closer. Um, But everyone was too optimistic, Um, even assuming that we pull out a win here. Uh, Everyone was too optimistic about what the margins looked like.
0: That's our show this week. Thanks so much for producing the episode, as always, by Ariella Markowitz. And thanks to Jim, Bruce, and Betsy for coming on the show. Tune in next week. I'm sure there'll be a lot more to dig through in the tech world and the political world. Thanks for listening to The 411.